Hi, I'm Brandon Briscoe, and welcome to another episode of The Postscript, Living Faith Bible Institute's weekly podcast and YouTube series devoted to interviewing pastors and professors from LFBI and across the Living Faith Fellowship. And so as you probably know, at this point, if you've been with us for any length of time on this show, that the Living Faith Bible Institute is unapologetically dispensational in our view of God's word. And so just to simplify that briefly, what that means is that we believe that there are clear uh, dividing lines in scripture where God deals with his people in different ways throughout time and within the context of scripture. So when we approach God, God's word, we need to be able to see those distinguishing marks, those distinguishing differences in the way that God is approaching his people and how he's calling them to, to serve him. And so that's, that's the, the, the brief explanation of our dispensational view. But we're going to be talking about Bible study today. And one of the critical principles within a dispensational view is the idea that the Bible, whether it be in the letters uh, that it has, uh, whether it be in the poetic writings, whether it be in the prophetic teachings or the historical narratives of Scripture, that in each of these instances that God has a particular audience that he's speaking to in mind. And not just a particular audience, but, but particular intentions, uh, things that he's asking of that audience. And so the idea here is that if you don't understand that audience, uh, that you can misapply God's word for your life. And, and we want to avoid that. So today we're going to be discussing the differences and the similarities with each of these people groups and discuss how that impacts our hermeneutic and our approach to studying God's word. And to have this conversation, we've invited Pastor Chris Best, uh, pastor of missions at Midtown Baptist Temple, but also professor of missiology here at the Living Faith Bible Institute. We're going to be discussing how to study God's word and these three people groups in scripture. And with that, Pastor Chris Best, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Good, Good to, to have be you here. here. Yeah. yeah. Um, Appreciate it. So uh, I invited you onto the show because one of the things I really appreciate about you is your ability to speak with clarity. And whenever we're talking about studying the Bible, um, I think it's a lot of times people can get mixed up in the, in the jargon of it or get lost because we could talk at a really high academic level about this. And we, we have the ability to do that, yes, right? Yeah. But we know that the audience is really broad. We've got students listening. We've got people who just enjoy the show um, tuning in. And so I want to make sure that this is something that people really understand because it is so practical to our understanding of God's word. So what does it mean uh, to identify an audience in scripture? What, is that, what does that mean? Explain that to us. Okay. So I think everybody knows that Context is the first rule of Bible study. Yeah. And establishing context is necessary for us to get the right understanding of God's word. And part of context is, you know, the the culture, to the, the group, the audience to whom this is written, any particular passage. So mm -hmm. everybody kind of knows that. And I think the thing that people maybe don't know is that God, who 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 wrote the thing, okay? Mm -hmm, right. He also gave us what we need to properly identify the audience. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 32 and 33, for example, says, give none offense, Paul says, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God, even as I please all men, he says, and all things. Then he continues. But he says, give none offense, nobody. 
And then he says, all men. And then in between those two, you know, absolutes, he lists Mm -hmm. off these people groups, the Jews, the Gentiles, and the church. And if someone could start to look at Scripture through the lens of those three people groups, Mm -hmm. okay, because you know context is important. We know we need to continue consider the audience. Well, here's the, the audience. It's either the Jews, the Gentiles, or it's the church. And I think with, with that understanding becoming a principle of Bible study, right. such a simple consideration will have profound implications. Yeah. For someone who's very new to Scripture, maybe they're reading the Bible, they see the term Jew, they see the term Gentile, they, they see... They might, I mean, if they're Christians, they know what the church is. Maybe explain and define what each of those people groups mean according to God's word and really historically. Yeah. Okay. So in Genesis chapter 12, God calls out this man named Abram, Mm -hmm. who later becomes Abraham. Okay. Until that time, there was just one group, just people, you know. However, after Genesis 12, now we've got... Abram called out. So now Abram becomes Abraham, you know, and he starts having his family. Mm-hmm. And there's We've a got, promise. There's a there's a promise there, right? That that you will be a blessing to all the families and the family, you know. So there's a very literal calling out there. He's separate from everyone else. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the twelve tribes. His name's changed to Israel. Mm-hmm. A tri- so a, a man becomes a family who becomes a tribe who becomes a nation. Mm-hmm. Now your two people groups include the Jews, that, that comes from Judah, or, or the Hebrews. Come, so so it, it all traces the, back. The Israelite people. The, the Israelite the people, of Israel. the Jews. And then you have everyone else. Mm-hmm. Everyone else is a Gentile. And then you have the Jews. Okay, and so you have two people groups historically. Yeah. Until something happens. There was a mystery Mm-hmm. Hidden now. Now God knew about it from before the beginning of all things. God had this thing in mind, but it was a mystery to everyone else that there's actually going to be three people groups. Mm-hmm. There's this people group who's going to come, some from the Jews, some from the Gentiles, but it's going to become a third people group called the Church. A mystery is something that was concealed but is now revealed. Mm-hmm. And if someone will start to look at that, you'll, you'll see that the first three chapters of Ephesians are all about that. Romans 9, 10, and 11, they're, they're all about yeah, that. Yeah. In fact, giant portions of our New Testament are really just explaining how the church came to be, this third people group came to be from the other two, and then how it all mixes together. Yeah. And yeah. what are the rules now that this new thing has been revealed? And that's... Those are the three people groups. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I'm glad that you mentioned that part about like Romans 9, 11 and Ephesians and even really Galatians as well. Yeah. Because you have these Jews that are historically, you know, a part of a, of a tradition that, that lasts millennia. Yeah. Right. There's a culture involved. There's a nation involved. There are laws involved. It permeates every aspect of their communal life. It is who they are. Mm-hmm. They're coming to faith in Jesus Christ. They recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And it kind of flips everything on its head. And their, their identity is kind of in flux. They're, they're, they, they suddenly are like, well, I'm, I have to put away the, the, the past and what I knew before in order to embrace this. 
But then you've got these Gentile peoples who are completely outside of that context, mm-hmm. uh, ruled by whatever form of polytheism in most cases that, that, that was within their communities. And they're, they're shunning things as well, but they have no Judeo background. And so they're entering into this and these two worlds kind of collide. And like you said, mingle together. It's kind of a mess at times because they don't really know how to see each other because their two identities under the banner of Christ are becoming one. And so now you have the Bible is full of letters and writings that are some written to Jews, some written to Gentiles, Mm -hmm. and then some that are written specifically to the church, which are redeemed Jews and Gentiles. Yes. Is a a way to maybe summarize that a little bit. Yeah, no, that's perfect. So maybe provide um, a couple of examples of how we might go about identifying the audience in a passage of scripture. Like, so this, maybe the, the, the concept is beginning to frame for our listener and they're like, okay, I, I get that. But let's, let's use a couple of examples of how they might see that practically work itself out on the pages of scripture. Yeah, I'd say there's, there's two ways probably to identify the, the audience. And the first one is just look at the book. Okay, you know, half the books are, are going to start with some sort of personal to and from like, hey, Brandon, it's Chris. Mm-hmm. I'm writing you a letter. And then you right. can see who it's from and you can see who it's to. Right. Okay. So you just look at the book itself. The other thing is you look at the books together. So you would take a broader view of scripture and see, okay, let's say you're reading a particular book. You want to see how that book fits in to the rest of, of, of scripture. And really, you're looking at God's interaction with humanity mm-hmm. as described in Scripture. And if I can find my place from that passage in history, I, I shouldn't have too much problem identifying the audience. So yeah. it's a it's a so you look at the book itself, see if you can if it just says who yeah. it's written to. But otherwise, you need to look at the at Scripture maybe in, in groupings or mm-hmm. in, in 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 the context and, and identify the the right audience that way. So like a really simple example of this might be if you're reading up Paul's letter to the Ephesians or to, or to the Colossians, from the outset, you know who the audience is because the, the book title tells you and really the introduction addresses the nature of, of who it's being written to. And we know that, that in those cases, those are Gentile cities, but it's written to a church. We can read it. These are people who believe on Christ. So the context is the church and the church age. Now, now that book, like you described, it also fits into kind of a, a broader um, vision of the, of the Bible and, and maybe clumped together with a series of letters. So like the Pauline epistles, I, I suppose this is what you meant, um, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. So now that fits within the Pauline epistles, which we know as a whole represent a time period and an age uh, that is, is distinguished by the church and particular doctrines. Mm-hmm and may be distinct from, from other things that have been written, uh, such as the Gospels. Yeah, exactly. So your example is perfect to the saints in Christ Jesus in Ephesus. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, 1 Corinthians 2, this is Paul writing to the church at Corinth. And mm-hmm. he just, Paul's pretty kind. Like yeah. he just kind of lets us know that, that he's writing that. Mm-hmm. So that would be examples of just looking at the book, and it'll just tell you who mm-hmm. it's written to. 
And then I would say, you know, so all, if I can group a book within the Pauline epistles, the church epistles, well, then I know that is written. The audience is the church. Mm-hmm. There's, you mentioned the gospels and that's, that is really maybe more interesting and maybe would be more, more helpful to some of the listeners. I think about John chapter one, 11 and 12, he came to his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. So if I'm reading through John and I've got this Bible principle in mind and I'm thinking about the three people groups, Mm -hmm. okay, Jesus came to his own and they received him not. Well, who's that talking about? Jesus wasn't a Gentile. He was a Jew. Okay. Did did Jesus come to the Jews and then they didn't receive him? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. This is the introduction to the book of John. Mm-hmm. Okay, then now I'm going to start looking at the book of John in light of that. What is John? What's the story of how Jesus came to his own and his own received him not? Mm-hmm. Then what happens? Well, then we have the book of Acts. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. So that, you know, now I'm reading through Acts, and instead of getting confused when it seems like there's a transition from Jew to Gentile. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. Now I understand completely there is a transition from Jew to Gentile because Acts 13, 46, Paul tells the Jews, look, we had to come to you first. Yeah. That's the right thing to do. Right. But listen, since you're rejecting it, we're going to go to the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. What is that? Oh, that's John 1, 11 and 12. And so I can then look at the Gospels and be like, oh, look at Jesus who's going to the Jews. So the things that I'm reading about What's the audience? It's it's Israel. Mm-hmm. It's the Jews. It's not the church. It's not the Gentiles. And then I see the switch yeah. in the book of Acts, and all of a sudden he's talking about going to the Gentiles. Right. Well, did he forget the Jews? No, no, no. Now this thing called the church is becoming evident, and now we see Jew and Gentile coming together. By the time you get to Acts 15, they're having to go meet in Jerusalem because it's like, well, the Jews are like, oh, good job on your baptism. Time to get circumcised. Right. No, the Gentiles were like, oh, wait, hang on. They just said, believe on Jesus. They didn't say yeah. anything about that. Yeah. And so they, they have to figure out what the church looks like mm-hmm. because it's no longer Jewish. Right. And it's no longer Gentile. Now it's Christ. Yeah. Christ is in all. He's right. all. It's all about him. And that's our identity now. Mm. So. Yeah. No, that's great. That's a great way of, of, of explaining that. Now, can you give us an example uh, of, of what it looks like when, it's, uh, when this principle is not applied correctly, right? So, you know, you've given some really great examples, especially with the Gospels. It's like, mm-hmm. you've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. These are all Gospels. They all tell the story of Jesus. I think most Christians read those and they assume, okay, well, it's in the New Testament. So does this, isn't this, they automatically think, oh, this is for Christians, Mm-hmm. But like you said, no, there's a, there's a Jewish emphasis because Jesus went to the Jews. They went, he went to his people first. He was the prophesied one. But then, oh, wait, John's a little bit unique because the emphasis is on, and the story is on the fact that he was rejected and the gospel is more inclined to a Gentile ear, right? And so you, you're, and then you see the transition acts. You did a great job of explaining that. But if, if one was to misapply the principle that you're talking about, what yeah. would that look like? And maybe you can give us some examples. 
Yeah. So I can give you an example of a friend of mine who I talked to, uh, and he just was struggling with eternal security, mm-hmm. which was a surprise to me because he reads his Bible, he believes in God, he prays, he attends church, he serves. Not He's not in a living faith fellowship, mm-hmm. but been a friend for years. I said, well, how can you... How can you struggle with eternal security, with losing your salvation? He said, well, I know Ephesians 1 says I'm sealed until the day of redemption. I I know that. But, man, Matthew, I read Matthew, and those are are red letters, man. And and I think I might be in danger of hellfire for calling my boss a fool and, and looking on a woman with lust. And he goes, and then in Psalms I was reading, and, and David says... Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. And he just mm-hmm. he goes, the Bible says, or at least implies, you can lose your salvation. Yeah, he the, was torn because the Bible seemed contradictory. Because he didn't know who he is. So he doesn't know that there's three different audiences, and he doesn't know which one he is, right. and he can't discern what is written to whom, and so he can't apply Scripture and so here's here's what what he ends up with. He's like, well, I don't know. Spurgeon says, mm-hmm. John MacArthur says, yeah, you know that this what whoever Adrian Rogers says, and he's stuck trying to choose a theology that feels right, or trying to find a, a pastor he can follow who can tell him. But honestly, these guys, if they're intellectually honest. They just have to shrug. It's like, eh. Yeah. Because they can't rightly divide the Word of God according to just this simple principle. So here's the thing. You got to know who you are. Like, which are you? Are you Jew, Gentile, or church? And then to whom is this passage written? Mm-hmm. Not just for whom. All of it's written for us. I can learn something yeah. reading someone else's mail, but it's not yeah. written to me. Right. So what is written to us? And, and, and then that's the explanation that brings clarity. Yeah. Like, look, and I know it's written in red, but this is Jesus coming to his own and his own. I mean, that's yeah. not written to you. Right. Yeah. And I think, some, I think sometimes that acknowledgement, um, I, I know in some cases where like a young believer who loves the word of God, very sincere, yeah. is hurt by the knowledge that the gospels aren't written directly to them. Like, it's like, wait, but I love it so much. What do you mean? It's it's almost as though they have to they're they're losing something. But that's a that's actually a wrong understanding because the whole of scripture is good for doctrine. Yes. Right? I can read a book called Hebrews, which I know is written to Hebrew people, and I can glean doctrine about the superiority of Christ, about the new covenant. I can learn angelology. I can there's all kinds of doctrinal mm-hmm. things that are for me, and there's nothing to be confused there. I don't have to get. I don't have to get confused about the Psalms, or I don't have to get confused about Matthew, which you mentioned. I think you yeah. might mention again. Matthew can be a very, very confusing book if you don't have the right perspective. I don't have to get hung up on that because when I read it, I can know. Oh wait, this is where I fit within the context yes. of the audience and who it's written to. It can be freeing, actually. I think so, and and nobody's doubting that God showed that young believer something from the Gospels. Nobody's doubting that God has been at work in their lives and and the Word of God was to them quick and powerful. Mm -hmm. And all Scripture is given to us and we should learn from it. Things that are true are true. Okay, so so if God told Abraham, you know, two plus two equals four, 
Well, I'm not going to say, well, I'm in the church age, so two plus two can't equal four. Right. That yeah. just would be stupid. Like, no, it's just God was talking to Abraham. So I'm going to learn from that truth. Mm-hmm. Okay. But if it did contradict something that God told me in the church, I would have to then filter that truth through this understanding that the church age actually has its own doctrine. Yep. So it is different. And this is, see, you don't have to shrug and explain away apparent contradictions. Because yeah. whatever you can't explain, you got to explain away. Yeah. You just have to shrug. Oh, I'm just going to allegorize that. Yeah. I'm not going to spiritualize that. What God must have really meant is something. No, he means what he means and he says what he says. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, you know. We're not saying that God didn't show you something out of Matthew. God's right. Just we need to understand in terms of a doctrinal application what is written to whom, and then who we are. Like, which audience are you? Yeah. Okay. Well, what's written to you, and mm-hmm. what's written for you? There's a difference there. And yeah. That we can discern that with this simple Bible principle that we can overlay in our hermeneutic, and and it all just starts to click. Yeah. The Bible makes sense. I can have a literal interpretation. So yeah, no, it, you know, it's not a. We're not doubting any, you know. Yeah, sincere, sincerity, sincerity has or very little stuff, to do yeah. with it. But the exactly. Bible does say, "Study to show thyself approved, a workman." And, and and so, in order to do that, we've got to recognize that there are ways in which we have to divide Scripture as workmen, uh, in order to stand approved before the Lord. Yeah. Um, I mean. Uh, God wants us to grow in our knowledge and understanding of his word. Um, he's not satisfied with us being complacent. He, he wants people to understand his book, and he's challenging us to do that. This, this is one simple truth, one simple principle necessary to unlo- unlock the entirety of Scripture. And, and Christians ought to learn it and understand how it applies. Absolutely. And my friend... Instead of growing in his knowledge and wisdom and understanding and ability to rightly divide, he just grew more confused mm-hmm. until finally, you know, his conclusion is, well, I guess we just can't know because there's so many contradictions in Scripture. Like, he believes the book. He's really saved. He yeah. believes the Bible. He believes God. He just doesn't know how. So instead of growing spiritually, he just shrug. Yeah. I don't know. How, how does anyone know that anyway? Well, this this is... A good starting point right, right here. for sure. Simple but profound. Yeah, and I think it's what you're talking about is really interesting because generally the outcomes for a person who hits that crossroads is to either walk away from the faith because they can't know or um, in, in, the, in a naive um, and innocent but loving position say, well, I can't know, but I sure love Jesus, and so I'm going to continue on in the best of my ability but then you still remain in the in the dark, right? It's still it's it's still obscured. Truth is still obscured. You mentioned a word that I want to come back to because it's relevant to my next question. Is this this issue of allegorizing scripture? I think that's a really important thing to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and we and for those of us who understand church history, allegorization became popularized by Origen. Um, uh, in about three, I suppose it'd be 300 if my, if my memory serves me right, around that time frame in which Origen was writing theological uh, writings, mm-hmm. a lot of which were preserved and retained by the early Catholic Church. And his main thing was seeing 
the word of God from an allegorical perspective. What does that mean? If, if people are listening, like I've never heard that. What does that mean? And, and why is that kind of a dangerous approach? Hey, thank you so much for listening to the show. We're going to pause right here for just a second so we can hear from one of our students from the Living Faith Bible Institute. Hi, my name is John Scott. I go to Northside Baptist Church in Columbus, Ohio, and I'm an LFBI student. LFBI is spectacular. It's an institute that is taught by pastors as opposed to professors, people who are actually in the ministry with their feet on the ground, in the dirt, making disciples, evangelizing, and actually loving people. And it's the best resource out there for any sort of Bible teaching. In my life, I've used many of the classes. One in particular is the evangelism class. After going through the course, I was able to transform by God's grace the whole method and the and the whole process of the Bible study where it is more evangelistic and we're able to actually reach out to people and then actually study the Bible together. It's something so simple, but man, it's it's because of LFBI that that changed. Now now we're able to plug that into an evangelistic ministry that we have out of our church. So I couldn't recommend LFBI more. To enroll for classes, visit lfbi.org. To support LFBI, please visit lfbi.org slash support. To see allegory is valid. There, There is allegory in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Paul might say, oh, by the way, I'm not really talking about, you know, muzzling the ox. I'm talking about the, the, the pastor, principle. the prince. So, so he can allegorize things. Okay, the problem with, with just choosing when to allegorize things for yourself is that there are things that are literal that if someone can't understand how to take literally, they have to then spiritualize it and say, well, that that word doesn't mean what it means. In this context, no, 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 no. Israel doesn't mean Israel. Mm-hmm. Israel means the church, which has replaced Israel. Right. Well, the millennium doesn't mean the millennium. It means just, you know, God's going to rule and reign right. for a while. What but, I heard recently was, Christ coming in the clouds doesn't mean he's actually coming in the clouds, right? <laughs> right. It's it's all the, you're right, that you can just kind of go down and pick and choose what thing is kind of just an abstract allusion yeah. to some sort of spiritual idea. And then it puts the onus back on the interpreter to come up with some sort of conclusion that fits a lot of times their their predisposition or bias as it concerns the Bible. Exactly. And so then you're taking away that literality that God intended from the Word. And this is part of explaining away things because you can't explain them. Mm-hmm. So if, for example, the church has replaced Israel and God is done with Israel, well, then what about the millennial reign, mm-hmm. which is from Jerusalem, a physical and spiritual kingdom for a thousand years with Christ at the helm for a thousand years? That, what are you going to do with Revelation chapter 20, which mm-hmm. is like five times it just says thousand-year reign, thousand-year reign. Th- well, that doesn't mean that. Well, and then, what, and then what people do with that topic with Romans 9, 10, and 11 is just terrible because yes. they work from a presumption that the church has now replaced Israel. But clearly that section of Scripture is, is if they're not reading it right, they don't see it this way. But it's clear that the context is that that Christ is going to redeem Israel, that they're still part of his story, that those promises still apply. And then that has to, again, that kind of has to be spiritualized and allegorized and, and reframed with new definitions. And you kind of have to, you kind of have to throw things away a little bit. Somehow you got to redefine a whole lot of stuff in Romans 11. Mm-hmm. 
has God cast away Israel? Well, God forbid. Well, that means God has cast away Israel. Like, the, until right. the fullness of the Gentiles, well, that doesn't mean that... I mean, God isn't done with Israel. Right. And there's no way to honestly read Romans chapter 11 and say that he is. Yeah. You have to somehow turn that into a, some sort of spiritual message which doesn't say what it says... That's the where allegorization right. gets in trouble. And if people would just recognize the people groups, appropriately identify what passages are written to whom, what they're going to see is the church age had a beginning. Yeah. It was a Jewish thing. Remember, it was a Jewish thing with two people groups, Jews or Gentiles, until the church came. Church age had a beginning, and now there's three people groups, and pretty soon the church age is going to have an end. Yeah. Why, why do you think it goes from Philemon to Hebrews? Like it mm -hmm. goes from Romans to Philemon. There's our church age doctrine. But then it goes to Hebrews and James and Peter and John. We have these Hebrew epistles because it goes back to being a Jewish thing. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know how you can miss that. Yeah, yeah. Unless you're coming to it with a view that already says God has done with Israel, which... Right. Well, and there's so much to say about that. Like you yeah, and I yeah. were just talking about the other, just uh, earlier t today, we were talking about how even Revelation itself begins with the church perspective, right? Like the first three chapters, yes. it's about the church, right? Hey, this is how the church has been throughout history. And, and now chapter four, there is a picture of a rapture and then the emphasis, it begins to change and it, and it goes back towards a Jewish-oriented perspective. Yeah. Uh, the Jacob's trouble, on and on and on and on and on and on. Okay, we, we, different, we can't go down that road. Yeah, but, different soteriology. Yes. Yeah. With that in mind, okay, with that way of thinking, we've already started talking about this, but give us some examples of how these misapplications manifest themselves in, in major, we'll refer to them as Christian sects, right? Denominational views theological perspectives that surround some of them, like, you know, I think the big ones are Catholicism, forms of charismatic mm -hmm. theology and Calvinism. Um, those are the, some of the major ones that differ from our own perspective. Maybe explain how those misapplications manifest themselves within those major sects of Christianity. Yeah. So I think the misapplications are going to be twofold. One is there is a misapplication of audience. Okay, so something that was written to the Jews are being applied to the church or, or vice versa, mm -hmm. a misapplication of audience. The other thing that happens is a misapplication of topic. So this, these three people groups and the mystery of the church age and how it all now fits together is a major topic in the New Testament. One error, okay, that people make in terms of, of this, th this study here is they will take a topic that's talking about people groups and they will apply it to individuals. So they'll take something about how the church, how the Gentiles and Jews are now one, and they'll try to turn that into a conversation about how to be saved. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not what that's talking about. Or they'll take a conversation that's talking about God's will that all would be saved, and then they'll, they'll try to make that. Oh, no, no, God's just talking about people groups. Mm-hmm. So 2 Peter 3, 9, God's not willing that any should perish. Well, that yeah. any just means Jew or Gentile. Well, no, it doesn't. Read the context. Right. 
First Timothy chapter two, verse four, God's will is that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, that all just means people groups. There's nothing in that context about people groups. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is right. So they they take what what God is talking to about this topic about people groups and they turn it into how to be saved, which it's it the, isn't. It's like a reverse of the problem. Right? They are getting it exactly backwards. And yeah. so those are the two things. So so with that in mind, and, and I would just challenge the listeners. Go online to to and just search out like uh, biblical, you know, Bible verses that support Catholic doctrine, and just see. Go, they're going to point you to Matthew. They're going to point you to topics of church and gent. Like, like they're going to make one of those two errors. Yeah, I just challenge you. Go to Romans, and Romans chapter two is talking about how both the Jews and the Gentiles are going to be judged righteously. It's talking about people groups. And the Roman Catholic Church has taken that verse and tried to apply it to an individual soteriology. Mm-hmm. That's not the context. Right. Number one error in scripture. But they got, I mean, it's the right people groups, it's the wrong topic. Right. You see that? Yeah, yeah. And then and then finally, their verse on, so that's their verses on works, okay? None of them line out. Their verse on, we're saved also by faith, they go to Acts chapter 15, which what's the conversation in Acts 15? Oh, it's how the the church is going to work. Is it Jewish? Is it Gentile? Do the, Jews have, do the Gentiles have to be circumcised? Mm-hmm. That's the conversation at hand. It's talking about people groups. Now, I, I agree with them that we're saved by grace through faith out of that verse, mm-hmm. but their hermeneutic isn't right. You don't go to the book of Acts which is our history book of the transition from Jew to Gentile. So, so that, for example, the Roman Catholic Church, it does not apply this principle, and they come up with a doctrine of salvation. And what you'll see, just, you know, false doctrine after false doctrine after false doctrine, it's either wrong people group or it's the wrong topic. Right. Just switching around right. what's written to yeah, whom. That's really interesting. Look up verses that support Calvinistic doctrine. They'll take you to Romans chapter 9, verse 11. Okay, so if, I'm just going to turn there real right. quick, if that's okay. Sure. Romans chapter 9, verse 11. This is one of their verses they use to, to teach the elect are, are predestined by God, that there's no free will of man. Okay. For the children, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. Okay, they just pull that verse out, and they say clearly that verse indicates that we don't have a free will or a choice in our own salvation. Right. It's monergism. Yeah. Okay, so this is Romans 9. This is that 9, 10, and 11 passage, which is talking about this topic that we're talking about today, three people groups and how it all works. And like, mm-hmm. well, what about Israel anyway? Did God forsake Israel? Is Israel done? No, God forbid. This, let me sh- explain this. That's the topic here. Right. The Calvinists take this to teach soteriology. They try to apply to your and my salvation when God is clearly talking about people groups. And you can just go through this passage, and you can just see that. Verse 24, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Right. All the way through Romans 9, 10, 11, to change the context to say that this is proving 
election, according to their definition of it, limited atonement and all that, right. doesn't it is not a valid hermeneutic mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. they're mixing these things up. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, with the charismatics, it would be, you know, a lot of it would be the eternal security issue, which you already brought up, but they're, they're using passages from Hebrews and, and places like you already mentioned to basically scaffold a, a view that says, that's an, you know, we'd call it an Arminian view that says that, that at some point, undetermined by man, right, that if you sin against the Lord, you have the ability to lose your salvation. It's problematic in terms of just basic logic, uh, yeah. But also it defies scripture. It just defies New Testament soteriology, New Testament, specifically church age, yes. dispensational church age view of salvation, which says we're sealed into the day of redemption, which says that we are the sons of, of God. We are the children of God and heirs. And that these things, these are things that can't be, can't be undone. And then all of that gets put aside because they're using these kind of contradictory uh, passages from general epistles and other places in scripture that would, um, that would say that you can. Yeah, which if you can't rightly divide the, the word of truth and Matthew holds the same doctrinal impetus yeah. as Romans does or Ephesians does, well then, yeah, I, I, I would be so frustrated. Mm-hmm. Because there are contradictions in sure, Scripture. Sure, you, like Matthew chapter 24. I mean, is the, is the king of this, <laughs> right? The, because right. people read that. And it is, it is so focused on a Jewish tribulation context. But when it gets misread and misapplied and it's applied to the church, well, suddenly you're a millennialist. Yeah. Or, or you are, you know, it just, or you're going through the tribulation. You're going through the tribulation. Yeah. Or, and, it, and it throws everything into confusion because the right divisions and the right audience and the wrong and the wrong topics are being derived. Yeah. You know, and one thing that maybe confounds this a little bit <clears throat> is that Jesus really did come to his own. He he really did come with a kingdom offer. Mm-hmm. I think about in in and I think it's Matthew where Jesus said, "Look, this is Elias." If you will receive it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of John the Baptist. Yeah. Is John the Baptist Elias? And they're all asking him, he's like, well, that's up to you. Right. Are you going to receive the kingdom at this time? If so, John the Baptist is Elias and he has come and we can now, I am making a valid offer to you to set up the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Here it is right now. We're going to do this thing on earth, rule and reign. Here's the constitution of the kingdom. And he lays it all out for them on the Sermon on the Mount. And he came to his own and he offered and his own received him not. Mm -hmm. Okay, now hang on. Well, what about all those things that were said? Are they true? Well, sort of. So is is John the Baptist Elias? Well, no. (laughs) I mean, he would have been. He could have been. But he's not because they... So now is Elias going to come again? Yeah. 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 So it can get confounding, when, but if you can start to think about the audiences and the people group, all of a sudden now, it can start to click yeah. for our listeners, for Bible study. You know, it's like, oh, now it makes sense right. to me why it says that. I never understood why Jesus said, well, John the Baptist might be Elias. Mm-hmm. If you will receive it, he yeah. is. But th- so that sort of a thing is, sure. is very clarifying. And I think... I think th- 
we will be doing, a, it's long overdue, a Kingdom of God, Kingdom of Heaven episode where we just focus on how do we distinguish between the two? Because that really is a, an analogous conversation to the one that we're having right now. And being able to identify the kingdom of heaven context, which is a Jewish context, mm-hmm. versus the kingdom of God context, which is a church age context. Yes. Distinguishing between those two things is incredibly important. It is. To understanding uh, the word of God. And uh, so we'll have to come back, come back to that uh, topic um, as we close, okay, we've already covered a lot of ground. I think that's, it's going to be really helpful for people, but discuss how understanding of audience plays into a dispensational view. We've already been touching on this along the way, but how does audience affect the way that a dispensationalist sees the Bible? And in particular, um, I think really one of the earmarkers of a dispensationalist mm. is, is the way we understand our soteriology. That would be the first thing. The second thing is, how do you know a dispensationalist? Well, it's our eschatology. Yeah. And this plays into the eschatology conversation. So, so how do we, how do we uh, use this as a, uh, an important principle for our dispensational view of Scripture? So I would, I would say personally that, that understanding of the three people groups overlays our dispensational understanding of scripture and of human history itself. Mm-hmm. So God, you know, throughout all human history has been at work and he's working to replenish the earth. He's working to establish a kingdom. He's working to redeem a fallen race back out of a fallen world through his love and, and, and through his goodness extended to us. And we see that all the way through and we can see it dispensationally. Mm-hmm. And we can see the human failure at every level until finally the only one who could get it right was Jesus Christ. And oh my goodness, there's the crux of all human history where Jesus Christ comes. Genesis 12, we've, we've got two people groups. Okay. Then here's the thing I just love about this, Brandon is that, okay, so here's the river of purpose of God's goodness extended to mankind throughout human history. Mm-hmm. And, and man, you know the devil hated it when Abraham had Isaac. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know that he hated it when Isaac had Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 kids. Yeah. Ah, the devil's hating that because what's happening is, is that... The God's people on earth are compounding and growing, and then they become a tribe, and then they become a nation, and you know the devil hated that. Yeah. Man, because it was just like one guy. Okay, but now all of a sudden, here comes Christ, the son of David. And the, the you know, First Corinthians says that had they known, they wouldn't have crucified him. Yeah. They crucified the king of glory, but the result of that was the church. Mm-hmm. See, his own received him not, but they didn't see the church age coming. It was a mystery. And all of a sudden what went from, because even the Jewish nation, Israel, well, they were scattered. They were got like, yeah. And the devil's like, yeah, Israel who? Right. Oh, but then the church age is born. And now how many billions Billions of souls 
Ha! What a what a fast one God pulled on the devil. How many right. souls? What mercy. God set aside his son, Christ, but then he also set aside Israel. Why? So that we could be saved. Mm-hmm. And here's this parenthetical thing interrupting what was two people groups. God's like, aha, three people groups, billions born yeah. again. And then here's yeah. the end of it. Okay. From a eschatological standpoint, the beginning of the church age, we, we can look at... Maybe people are going to argue, did that happen at the death of the testator? Did that happen when it had a beginning? Yeah. Okay. The church age had a beginning. The church age also has an end. Well, what happens at the end of the church age? What about those people who aren't dead yet? First Corinthians 15 tells us, well, there's a rapture. Mm -hmm. They're like taken up. So if we're not dead yet at the end of the church age, what happens to believers at that time is called the rapture. Just right. the church age is over, and now it goes back to being a Jewish thing. So from an eschatological standpoint, I don't have to explain away allegorically what the Bible talks about as the Great Tribulation. Mm-hmm. I can simply believe there is a literal Great Tribulation, and I can place it in human history just like Hebrews follows Philemon. Yeah, I can believe that the Tribulation follows the church age, which the is what the Bible lays out, then right. I can also I, see, I don't believe that Israel, re, that the church replaced Israel. So then when it goes back to, I can believe in a millennium. I don't have to explain away a millennium because right. part of my doctrinal stance that I'm going to go to, to fight for is that the church replaced Israel, replacement theology. Well, that should have gone away in 1945. I mean, but, yeah. but they stuck with it and they're right. still saying that. So now you and I can open our Bibles to Revelation 20, and from a biblic- with a biblical theology based on this principle, we can just show someone. Mm-hmm. I can just show you what it says. I don't have to explain it away and allegorize it. So we have an eschatology that says there is a rapture, there is a tribulation, there's the battle of Armageddon, there's a millennium, and then we yeah. enter into eternity future because that's what the Bible says. Right. Okay, and then in terms of our soteriology, I'm not going to try, try to apply tribulation soteriology or legalism, works-based salvation, to the church age. The church age has its own doctrine, and it's very simple to to look at it, see what it says, and see that we're saved by grace through faith, mm-hmm. not of works. Yeah. It's, 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 it's so clear. If you can simply apply this one principle which has profound implications in terms of our understanding, our hermeneutic, and our application of Scripture. I knew you'd nail this one. <laughs> Thanks, bro. It was, it's been so good, and it's been super clear. I think anybody that's learning to study the Word of God could listen to this episode and, and feel much more confident. And, and, and even for people who are familiar with the Word of God and they feel like they have a theology that sticks Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you've made a strong argument for a dispensational view and a, and a better understanding of how audience works. You don't, you know, we don't have to di- diminish that attribute of our study. So, Chris, thank you so much. Man, thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. For all you PostScript listeners, thank you for hanging with us today. We want to encourage you so much just to, to get into God's Word every single day. 
And, you know, we talk about reading scripture and we, you know, our daily bread and that kind of devotional view of God's word. Well, I want to, I want to actually say that's good. That's good. But I want to kind of challenge that a little bit because the Bible itself points to the idea that we are supposed to study it and that we're supposed to go from milk to meat. You know, it's for babies uh, to, to drink milk and to have mushy food because they can't, their body can't handle uh, heavier things. But as they grow and they, they, they get teeth, uh, they have the ability to eat heartier meals. And that's true for God's people too. And we've been gifted uh, with the invention of the printing press and the translation of God's word into English. We have been gifted with the ability to hold God's word in our hand. We don't have to hear it from a priest. We don't have to hear it from a pastor. We can go straight to God's word and for ourselves learn how to, how to determine what it means for our life. We can learn doctrine for ourselves. We can study it daily and we, can, and we can learn to love it. But, but here's the deal. It's up to you to have a biblical hermeneutic, a, an understanding of how to divide scripture. You've got to make a decision that you are going to learn a theology necessary for dividing God's word and consuming it and being able to eat the heartier things of God's word. And so we want to invite you with that. That's my pitch to sign up for LFBI. Uh, if you're in a local church, get discipled, start there. But in time, we want to invite you to be a part of our Bible Institute that you might grow in God's Word, that you might get a, a, a deeper understanding of who He is in His Word, and that you would be more confident in your ability to teach it and to minister to other people and to uh, ba basically be able to lead your family and the people that surround you from the truths of Scripture. We love you. Uh, we hope that you share this show, that you like, you subscribe, uh, that you join us again next week, next Monday, for another episode of The Postscript. God bless. Thanks for listening to The Postscript. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating and review in order to help other people find our podcast. If you value this show, please help us continue creating content by supporting Living Faith Bible Institute at lfbi.org support.